Welcome to the Oil & Gas Elevate podcast. Each week, Sean McCoy and Eric Johnson share real-world case studies of businesses in oil and gas that are successfully navigating the complex environmental, social, and governance landscape. These are the stories that are driving the energy evolution. Here's a demonstration of some mental stimulation. We a nation making change. Let me frame the illustration. It's time for us to elevate your mind to a higher place. Oh, in the power here to innovate. Innovate. Elevate your mind to a higher place. Oh, in the power here to innovate. Welcome to another episode of the Elevate Podcast. I'm your host, Sean McCoy, joined as always by my co-host, Eric Johnson. Eric, good to see you, buddy. Sean, how are you doing? Living the dream, brother. Loving it. Today, we have an amazing case study coming up of Wellsite Sentry. It's an emergency response system utilized during the completions process, followed by an insight segment with Jason Newenhouse, who is an environmental health and safety EHS expert about the significance of that story. So we're looking forward to that coming up in the next two sections. But before that, as we always do, we're going to start out with our talking point. And Eric, when you think about things like where you get, you know, do you have something like a daily blog or a daily email or something that you get kind of information from on a daily basis? So, you know, there's so many resources out there, Sean. There's, there's almost like drinking from a fire hose if you want to go out and look at ESG related stuff. You know, I actually source a lot of my things through LinkedIn and follow them there, whether you follow the websites or separately or not. But LinkedIn seems to be where I, I pull most of my stuff from, both you know, in the U.S. and then internationally, it's so many resources, I think, specifically for us in Houston that we don't touch on enough some of the stuff that's coming out of Europe and the U.K. And yeah, no, for sure. And that's where we're trying to get this. We're trying to connect with people in that world and in the whole world as far as that goes to discuss these subjects. So one of the things that I listen to or I get on a daily basis is an email called it's ESG Clarity. It's a daily email that I get. And I was looking through it the other day and came across an article and the title was Pangea CEO Klisman Marathi states, grouping ESG into one concept is not warranted. And so that kind of caught my eye because you and I have had these conversations before where, you know, we, with the greenwashing, we worry about the collective, you know, how you measure things and does it get lost? You know, how do you, how do you concentrate on environmental and social at the same time? They're completely different things. And so like, you know, as they expect, you know, I went there and read the article. I was really fascinated by the, by the perspective. And I looked up the author, Klisman, and in the true nature of you're talking about LinkedIn, one of the things we like to do, the first place we like to go is to shoot out and say, can I find the author or find somebody to kind of talk about it with a talking point? So I did a little research, found Klisman on LinkedIn, reached out. And I mean, I tell you, in just a few minutes, literally, he responded back, was anxious about connecting. I told him about the show. And so with that, we brought him on to kind of go down this path a little bit further. And so I want to tell you a little bit about Klisman before we get started. So he's an original voice and thought leader described often as an influencer who understands the human aspects of business and world affairs that others miss by some of the most important organizations in the world. He enjoys diving in and tackling some of the most pressing geopolitical, technological, and societal challenges the world will face in the next hundred years. So definitely one of those voices of, you know, looking at a talking point for, for ESG. This has allowed him to be a trusted advisor to leaders in finance, industry, defense, and politics who want to understand the world more clearly. And I think, I really think it's highlighted with this type of article. And so with all that, Klisman Marathi, buddy, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. Thank you for inviting me, guys. Well, excellent. So Klisman, so you, you wrote the article before, or you, were, you wrote a different paper, and this was a kind of a, a synopsis of that. So kind of right now today, we're in terms of your you know, heart and mind, where you've been, as this thing has evolved, and as you've constantly looked at this, I know this is a subject this dear and passionate to you. Kind of where are things now with you in terms of separating ES and G? That's a good question. I think every time when we come to reflect on the way the world changes and the way the world works, what many investors miss 
and they miss by a long shot is how decisions are made and the decision-making process that goes into investing decisions. Too much in investing, we have a period where we have trends that take over the landscape psychologically of investors' minds. And as the world becomes more globalized, what you'll see more so happen is these ideas take, you know, are lit and the fire spreads without a lot of thinking behind what's actually going on. And ESG is a perfect example of this. Even if you look at it from an outsider's point of view, being able to, first of all, understand how you put these three together and also how do you measure it in a way that makes sense in one measurable entity is almost impossible because the three measures by themselves are difficult to measure and also difficult to find out which is the best way forward. For example, what are, what are the best governance measures, for example? Every company has a different way of thinking about it. That's what makes them unique. So homogenizing it and standardizing it only leads to less innovation, I think, and less ability to see the difference between companies and nuance and how businesses can and should perform. So we're really stuck in a convoluted place now, and I fear that if this continues down this path, then we will see some sort of ESG bubble emerging because no one is looking at the fundamentals. They're looking at how we can measure this and how, in my point of view, asset managers can receive more assets under management for them to manage and to win off of fees. So this is where I see it right now, and I'm sure we'll go into a lot more discussions. Sean, I mentioned this to you, I think, earlier today, but I had a conversation yesterday with kind of the legal head for ESG and governance for one of the largest oilfield service companies here in Houston. And we had a long conversation around the three buckets. And, I, you know, there was some frustration internally in talking with that person. They, they think like they, and this is true, I think, for years, not decades, you know, oilfield service companies, energy companies have been focused on these buckets individually, whether they've been focused on the kind of the environmental side, whether they've been focused on employee safety and other social issues, which have, you know, you go to any OFS company uh, board meeting, the very first slide in the slide deck is about safety. So employee safety and those types of issues have always been in the front. And they're frustrated now because, as you said, there's this fire spreading, right? Where they, we have jammed together the ESG into kind of this single universe. But, you know, thinking about it, trying to strategize around it, trying to plan and execute on initiatives related to it when it's all jammed together, just doesn't work. And I think that's where you were kind of headed. We've made our lives harder, not easier by trying to jam these things all together. We're trying to be innovative, but this innovation isn't based on fundamentals. That's the problem. And also if you do the research and if you read the sentiment of investors, there was an article that came out on Investment Week that said that less than half of investors feel confident in creating a measurable ESG impact strategy. Well, that goes without saying, especially when you have the bigger organizations leading on this, then a lot of the smaller guys will think we need to take this lead because we see a trend happening here. And if we don't follow this trend, then we miss out. Now, tell me if, if this isn't an equation for eventual disaster, I don't know what is. Right. So to that, Klisman, just as a, obviously one of the things you do is advise, obviously one of the things you do is consult in that area and, and, and that kind of thing. So it, it can be overwhelming. We look at an entire industry, whether it could be oil and gas or energy or name your favorite area, finance, whatever. It can be daunting. And then you add the geopolitical side to it and it's just everywhere and everything. So trying to change the world at one time is a daunting task, I think. So what would you give advice to, because we get, Eric and I get these questions a lot from business leaders that's in oil and gas, like, what do we, what do we do and how do we handle this kind of situation? What, 
So if you're looking at, a, say, a mid-cap company or somebody who's not, you know, your big, you know, your big you know, kind of media uh, darling in terms of a company, but is somebody who's trying to do the right thing, mid-cap, low-cap, some, they're in the industry, they're, they're successful, they have a pretty fair amount. What kind of advice would you give them specifically on what to do? Sure. Well, I think my advice changes depending if they're a public company or a private company, because the forces upon their actual structure and their development is different. But if you speak about a public company, the, the stocks and shares on an open market, I think it's really important for, especially if you're speaking about an energy company, to do your business well. And what does this mean? You see a lot of times, not only in financial markets, but also in the real economy, that's where I think the value of the world is because the financial economy, you know, sometimes hijacks or hedges off of what's happening in the real economy. And that's where their profits lie. But the damage and the prosperity will happen only in the real economy for the majority of people in the world. So if you're, if you're an energy company who has a long-term vision, you need to crystallize that and make that as clear as possible to your staff and to your team as well and as, and as best you can. And with that, you communicate these visions and these ideas with your investors and with the market in general. And be wary of following trends which you think don't warrant the energy attention or the financial you know, allocation to do so. Because especially if you're a smaller company, you know, oil is, you know, the price of oil is very low now, margins are being squeezed. And if you're not careful, you'll, because what your friends are doing, you'll misallocate capital to projects just to make it seem as if you're doing what is needed of you. And all you're doing there is just, you know, sort of rubbing the bellies of investors because they want to see you doing what the general mass are doing. That's completely the wrong way to take it because if you're not careful, if you don't understand why the market is moving in that direction, then you'll fall victim to that ignorance and you'll fall prey to investors who are just wanting you to do that so they make money themselves. So it's really about having a really, really clear vision of what you want to do, the standards you set for yourself, which are also industry standards, which in general and in the long term will be homogenized because of that's how the industry sees it. And pay attention to investors to the point where you feel you need to, because if you always look towards what the, what the stock price is doing, then you will behave in a very short term way, only to satisfy next quarter earnings and to satisfy that. And you'll make a lot of short-term mistakes, which in the long term will end up to bigger mistakes. So in general, without being too specific on the industry and on leadership, that's what I do. And within that, you tackle ESG separately within your organization yourself. Because if you look at the macro guys, this ESG you know, beast that has developed is two-tiered. And the first tier here of the real economy and companies who are looking at ESG measures and how it helps their business grow and thrive. And these measures and these standards are created within that industry themselves and they're agreed upon strategies. And then you have on the second level of the financial economy, so investors then creating their own measures of ESG, which are complex and which are very, they're trying to make them homogenous. And then these measures inform the investors as to which companies fit their own measures, which aren't really that attached to the actual company themselves because they're so diverse. And then that instructs the investors in where to allocate capital. But you can't follow that game because you're not in that game. You're in the game of doing what you do and doing it as best you can. I think that is one of the biggest frustrations for a lot of companies right now is as they look at the real economy, as they look at the business they're trying to run and where they think they can make the most money and provide the most benefit for all their stakeholders, right? Not only stockholders, but employees and customers and the community and whatnot. 
they're a little bit frustrated by the investor community. And again, this fire that's spreading around ESG, but the, I mean, the real question becomes, you know, we're seeing capital leave specifically for us in the energy space, we're seeing capital exit because quote dirty, right? But at the same time, when you look out over the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years, there's still going to be a significant demand for the oil and gas business, right? Mm-hmm. So I think there's this balance between trying to keep investors happy and trying to maintain access to capital. There's a PR side to it as well. But at the same time, also at a strategic level, at a board level, go, okay, are we going to, as you, if you said, are we going to allocate capital to renewables? Are we going to allocate capital to other businesses? Are we going to do something like B, like BP did and make a, a zero pledge and try to leave the oil and gas business eventually? For some people, that doesn't make any sense. And I think it's incumbent on those public companies to really come up with a clear message about what that future is that kind of threads that needle in all honesty. And then threading the needle is going to be extremely difficult. So, Clisman, do you have any, in terms of ESG relative to the business? So a lot of times it's, it's the, the kind of the norm. There's something that Eric and I talk about a lot is it seems like when the business does well, and is profitable, then we'll kind of concentrate on these other things that are kind of not part of the profit margin and they're kind of inherent costs. Years ago, I remember hearing you know, anything kind of done philanthropically or done kind of from a social standpoint that isn't helping us to be truly profitable is just a bottom line loss. And there's there's kind of a disconnect between the actual value, economically speaking. Do you have any examples or do you believe that there's a real economic value for a business to incorporate those ESG principles into what they do on a day-to-day? I think that's a good question, but I think that's a question that shouldn't really be answered if ESG was doing its job right. Now, this now this is what I mean by that. I think what I've really struggled to understand in this new trend is what is the role of business? Because this question may be even 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 100 years ago, was very easy. The role of business is to make money and you sell your products and services in order to make money. So that's what the function and the whole, you know, MO of a business is. As the world becomes more globalized and as we see the impacts of industry affecting not only economic changes, environmental changes, social changes and governance changes, companies now and industry in general is reflecting on itself as to what should be the role of business because they've come up with the answer that it can't only be about money. And we need to have some sort of social dynamic, which also allows us to make money, but at the same time doesn't destroy the environment in which we operate in. This is why I think these ESG measures and this consciousness of ESG has grown. And it's not a bad thing. I think it's a very good thing for our industry to recognize the impact they have on the world. And if I were a company operating this, I would not myself have such grandiose visions as to what me as an individual company can do because you can only operate in the ecosystem that you're in so if esg was doing its job right then asking the question should it be profitable shouldn't even be there it should be it is profitable but we're also doing it for sustainability the community now the investing community not the real not the real economy but the investing community what i ask them is are your esg investments making your clients money more than if they weren't ESG? And that's the question that they find hard to answer because it's such an early stage innovation that what they're hoping the answer is, of course, and in the best case scenario, we make more money and we save the planet. But if ESG measures are so lackluster as they are now, if they're so broad and all encompassing to really mean nothing, 
then what are you basing your asset allocations on really? And if they're not based on anything tangible and fundamental, and if everyone does that, then what you do unintentionally as an investor is that you incentivize companies which seem ESG-friendly to tell them you're doing a great job and continue doing it. Whereas they may not have a credible or a long-term proper ESG strategy, and they just think, well, so many people are, are investing us, we must be doing the right thing. And it's that blind leading the blind all the way to the cradle of hell as the future continues. So yes, ESG should be a thought process that should go along making money because it's very necessary. But at the same time, if you're asking that question, you're really not analyzing it from the right angle. Yeah, I've heard, I heard a statement way back of it, that road to hell is paved with good intentions. That's what made me think of that. So this went by really quick. Klisman, Eric, any last thoughts before we wrap up? I think the last point was an important one. And John, something you and I have talked about a lot is like corporate America, corporate world can't push sustainability initiatives if the company is not sustainable itself. So, from you know, everybody thinks profit and making money and, and doing businesses that are successful are some kind of negative. And I think it's completely wrong attitude, which is, no, we need to be highly successful from a profitability standpoint because that is our platform for making change. And so sustainability not only means the ESMG, but it also means, hey, we run a financially successful business that allows us to change the world. And I think that's key. Yeah. And also what, one thing that I'd like to mention off the back of that, Eric, if you will, is that is that ESG seems to be sort of an innovation that has come from more established and a more established economic system. So it comes from sort of Western institutions. We see this developing more. But if you compare this to the Paris Climate Accords, sort of it's a break, it's sort of the keystone piece of international legislation that has gathered the world around it. Now, if you look at the countries within the agreement, and if you go to a website called climateactiontracker.org, which actually, ma- which actually sees how well these countries are doing, I want you guys to guess, out of the 33 nations which are mentioned, how many of them are actually on track to be Paris Agreement compatible out of the 33? How many of them, if they continue down this right track now, then they're on track to actually meeting their climate goals? It's going to be a lot of number zero. <laughs> One, two? The answer is two. <laughs> John, and of those two nations, yeah. the two nations are Morocco and the Gambia. Those are the two nations which, if they continue down this track, they will actually reach these goals. All other countries are either compatible, insufficient, highly insufficient, or critically insufficient. And the bigger nations are more on the critically insufficient and, and highly in, insufficient parts of the map. So there's a big ask from the political world for industry to do something about it, but they need to do it in a much more innovative way, in a much more simplistic way, especially if you're looking at the most important aspects of the world being ecological environment and focus on that as opposed to also attaching the other two onto it because it sounds good on paper and it sounds good to investors. Yeah, it's a, it's a never-ending topic. I'm so glad for your time, Klisman. Appreciate it. We're going to put it in the show notes where to find him, how to reach out to him and, and hear more because I know he there's some other reports and papers and stuff that he gave us, which we'll share. And of course, I mean, he's obviously very reactive. So I, I'd encourage you to reach out to him and, and listen to what he has to say. So Klisman, thanks for joining us, buddy. Thank you very much. All right, and with that, we'll head on to our second segment, the case study with Wellsite Century, which we're looking forward to. Stay tuned after the break. Hey, Sean, quick note about our sponsor, Hewlett Packard Enterprise. HPE goes beyond digital transformation. Their unique offerings can redefine your company's experience from edge to cloud to core. They can show you how to create a digital reinvention in oil and gas. 
Their experts can explain how to use intelligent data and infrastructure solutions using digital technologies like never before to open new revenue streams and results. Sean, where can our listeners find out more? It's a great question, Eric. They can go to www.hbe.com forward slash engage forward slash IOT or click on the link in the show notes for more information and where to download this white paper all about it. Welcome to the case study segment of the podcast. This is the area where we get down, we sit down with a company, a person, a business, a technology, and dive into a real life story of what people are doing out there in the industry, in oil and gas to fight ESG. This one is one of those, it's a bit of a marvel. It's, it's one of these, it's almost one of these things where you say, why didn't I think of that? Or right. this seems so smart and such an, I know Brady was just talking, Brady Neal from Wellsite Centuries, who we're talking to today here in a bit. But I actually saw a post on LinkedIn today where he was out in the field talking to one of his clients about what they do and literally had this episode or had this comment like, why isn't everybody doing this? Right. I'm excited about this episode. I'd love when we get to ground zero, so to speak, we actually get to the well and we talk about some things that we're actually doing at the well with respect to ESG. So it's going to be a great episode. Yeah. Cause a lot of times we see, we're a little bit romanticized with that. We see the pump jacks or we just see the piping come out of the ground. We see, you know, some sort of completions operation out there where the hydrocarbons are coming out and we just kind of smile and think, Oh, everything's under control. What could go wrong? But there's plenty, and there's, there's plenty of things that come up. And it's definitely one of those areas that when it does go wrong, we, we hear about it in the industry for sure. It's definitely an image issue and something we, we need to address and, and be better about kind of the image that we portray. I mean, let's be honest, what, the stuff that we do is dangerous, and it can get sideways quick. That's for sure. That's for sure. So just to kind of get to the, get to the point, today we're going to talk to Brady Neal. He's the founder and CEO of Wellsite Sentry, and we're going to talk about his creation of his basically the entire company's motto of an emergency response, both with personnel and equipment at the Wellsite and that program. So we're going to tell you a little about Brady before we jump in. He is a native of Oklahoma and currently lives and operates his company out of the city of Norman. He has a degree in finance from the University of Central Oklahoma. Shortly after graduating and after getting married, he made another leap of faith going into business with both his wife and his mother-in-law around a franchise. So you know the guy's got no fear at all, <laughs> for sure. And so there were lessons there, which I love that part of it. He said there were lessons were learned, and then he, and then he entered into a 10-year career in law enforcement as a detective investigating financial crimes. So then he jumped on it. He had an entrepreneurial spirit. This is one of the things we see so much. Eric, we've, we've been very fortunate with a lot of our case studies. You have the, there is an entrepreneurial spirit that can go beyond just like, you know, an iPhone or something. iPhones aren't simple, but just some sort of simple thing. But this is a really complex answer to a simple or to a complex issue. And so he jumped on that entrepreneurial spirit. And then he saw a chance to jump into the oil and gas industry through his other company around corrosion control tool that he established through his company, Corosource. So he started, literally started in his garage, which I love, moved to a shop along with expanding the company. And it led to the creation of this case study today as that expanded into the well site Sentry program that we just discussed a second ago. And so with all of that, Brady, buddy, thank you so much for taking the time and coming on the podcast. Hey guys, thanks so much for having me. Uh, what a pleasure to be on here. Thank you for all the, that you guys are doing to benefit the industry when it comes to ESG and get stories out and, and better our industry. So thank you guys for uh, giving me this opportunity. You're more than welcome. So let's, let's kind of start with the, you know, the origins of this. And so where was the, what did you see? Uh, here you are, you know, career law enforcement, some other areas, not your typical oil and gas start, but obviously there was a problem out there that you recognized and an opportunity when you jumped into the, after you started Core Source and said, let's attack this problem. What brought you to that point? Well, as you mentioned, we had our corrosion control tool, which focused more on midstream part of the industry. 
we were in well servicing, so the production side of the industry, and we wanted to get our hand in the upstream. And we kept on thinking, what can we do? What can we do? And finally, one of my partners, Junior Navarro, came to me and said, hey, I've seen this, but I think we can do it better. And it's it's emergency response. It's fire suppression out on the well site. And of course, at that point, I was still in law enforcement. And, and the first responder inside of me said, yes, we can do that. And let's do it in a way that no one's ever done it before. So that really started our journey. And, and how are we going to do what? What is the number one cause? Alliance Global did a report entrance claims from 2013 to 2018. So there's 1,239 claims in that report. Fire was the number one cause of energy loss. So uh, 46% of the value of all those claims was from fire in oil and gas industry. So you know, that, that's, that's a huge concern. So we said, what kind of system can we build in order to protect assets and most importantly, protect people out there? So that's what started our mission. Mm. So you start, you have this beautiful vision, obviously well, you know, well-researched and there's an application, but as you start that journey, give us a problem that you encountered that you expected, that you came up against, and then one you didn't expect along that path. Sure. So when, when you're starting something, you, you obviously, we call it the full 4D loop, you know, discover, design, develop, deploy, Discovery was pretty easy, but one thing that we kind of expected was the design aspect of this. When you're talking about mitigating fires in an effective and efficient way, I mean, that gets complicated. We had to, we had to really dive into expertise when it comes to friction loss on our supply hose. And, and how is it being done? How can we do it different? A foam, the type of foam, placement of fire hose. You know, we took all those things. So that, that's something we expected, but design took us a little bit longer just because we thought we knew how we wanted to design it, but that wasn't the way we ultimately ended up completing our system, what we call now a distributed hose rack system. One of the things that was really unexpected was the idea of integration. Integration is tough and we learned to become excellent executing on integration. We're trying to integrate technology with emergency response systems. And so we learned a little bit about that, that it was a little bit unexpected. Hmm. And so all that to be, so you go through those issues, other ones, you identify the problem. So what exactly does Wellsite Century do? What's your mission? Well, we created a group of people who believe in transforming Wellsite safety. And that's what we're doing through the integration of technology, emergency response systems, and professional first responders. We're on a mission to transform Wellsite safety out there. Awesome. So since you've launched it, give us some idea of some of the applications of some of the, as you've put it out there in the world and made it happen. Tell us a little about what's happened so far. Well, you know, back in middle of 2018, we were talking about it a lot, but what Walt Disney said is that the best way to get started is quit talking about it and begin doing. And so that's what we did. We found a completions company that was willing to give us a chance who was already integrating fire suppression on their completion sites. That was Quantana Energy Services, who is now merged with KLX Energy. And they gave us our chance back in June of 2018. That's when we launched and we connected with them. They liked what they saw. And we were out there on a mission to back up a little bit. You don't hear this a lot in the oil and gas industry, but we were out there to serve. That's one of the first things I told our ERTs out there, emergency response technicians. I said, we are here to serve every person on this site and let's do it with excellence. And we did it, that first site, that, that give us a chance moment. And we were able to work for them up in, even into this day. So that was a huge blessing for our company. So one of the things we like to, to kind of focus on is, a, is extrapolate out exactly how this applies to either the environmental, social, or governance side. I want to, you and I talked before, and I kind of want to focus on the social side. One of the things you mentioned, and you just kind of talked to it, was the, is the human impact. What this has had. Those of us who have been in the industry, if you've been out there, any kind of place where there's real danger, there's this weird paradox that starts to happen 
where if I'm the one working, I don't want somebody coming in and telling me how to do it. Or, you know, I know it's safe. I know it's right. And the people that usually come in, the attitude can be very adversarial versus very collaborative. You have been able to kind of help. Obviously have that, you talked about, you and I talked about that a little bit in the beginning, how that can be that way to start, but that ultimately they realize that you are there to actually serve them. So tell us a little bit about the social impact that this has had out there. Absolutely. You know, ESG, what is it? It's this higher expectations, right? It's a set of standards that we raise the bar. And, and I, I, that, that's a picture of what we did. We raised the bar coming in on that site, handing a guy a bottle of water out on a, on a completion site. That's unheard of. And that's what our guys were out there to do is to serve in that morale, the way it said, hey, our employer is willing to invest in this supplier to come in and provide these type of services for us. That was interesting to see that morale boost and the social impact of the ESG to see that for them to know, hey, if, if, if I'm having chest pains, it might be a heart attack. Not only do I have to go, I'm not just going to go sit on the tailgate of my truck, but I'm actually going to go to Wellsite Centuries Command Center and have an EMT start diagnosing me and connect with telehealth or connect with emergency services. And so that impact on it was really interesting to see those team members get excited about, hey, my company's actually paying for this service to be out here on the site to benefit me. So Brady, take just one minute and kind of explain to us in shorthand exactly what is on the site from Wellside Century. Exactly. You, you just mentioned the command center and we're talking about fire suppression systems, just kind of an overview of what is actually at the site and what, what the completion companies are getting out of. Great question. So we break down the technology aspect of things, what's happening. We step back, how can we be proactive? That's where the technology comes in, is using technology to be proactive instead of just reactive. So one thing we do is the thermal imaging temperature measurements. On these command centers that you mentioned, Eric, we have a, a mask that goes over the air. We have normal cameras on there, and we also have thermal imaging cameras that are temperature measurement. Some c- cool things happen with that. We can actually get ahead of maintenance. We can, uh, hey, pump seven's running hotter than the rest of the pumps. Mechanic needs to go check that out. Sure enough, hey, packings might need change or something. It also identifies fires on the site. So we're able to see flare-ups or fires or temperature change. So that's one of the thermal imaging temperature. It was really important for us to be proactive. Another thing that we're really excited about that we created internally, you know, really proprietary, what we did inside was what we call our emergency notification system or our ENS system. What we found, everybody hollers on the radio when there's a fire or a medical response, everybody's yelling, there's a lot of chaos. And so we created a system that you have an iPad and the data, the blender van or a display, it's a touchable screen. And that corresponds with the display inside our command center. And they can actually just click on the screen and hit fire or injury or caution. And it lets our ERT know exactly what's happened. So we've created this dispatch system. So that's some of the technology that we have. And then when it comes to emergency response inside our command center, we have 30 minutes of air, 30 minutes of water. We're there for that acute response. We're not well controlled. That's important that our expectation is not well. We're there for that acute response in order to knock down and mitigate the risk while local first responders come to the scene. So you have fire suppression. And then another on top of that, our medical or emergency response, you have our medical services. So inside our command centers, we have lay flat recovery. We have O2, we have oxygen, we have AED. All of our ERTs, our emergency response technicians are trained firefighter one EMTB at least. So that's a part of it. And then lastly, the first responders, you have someone who is a trained for emergency response on scene and willing to take over command of that scene during that emergency incident and then turn that over to the proper authorities when they get on scene. It's just amazing to, you know, kind of have a contractor that can pull all that together for you from a safety standpoint. And, and my assumption is that go back to the human impact part that you talked about, Sean, is, you know, that feeling of safety and the confidence around what is really a really pretty dangerous job and to have that kind of cover. You know, 
Brady, one of the things that's obvious part of the you know energy evolution solution going forward is you're going to see a lot of the oil field service companies, you know, their footprint at the well is going to shrink. They're automating more. They're more remote ops. You actually have, and I guess from a safety standpoint, this is good. You actually have fewer people at the well site, but that's also fewer people that can monitor problems, that can monitor flare-ups, and actually respond, you know, to issues. And so, just your thoughts on on kind of the reception you're getting from you know, the service companies and, and talking about the value you guys provide as they try to downsize their footprint, but actually having a contractor that can come in and supplement kind of on this safety, both for people and equipment side. Yeah. And that's one of the things when we, when we took up, we started this mission, you know, we said it, we said we didn't want to be another company that just checks the box as far as it comes to safety. We wanted to be proactive and we wanted to be effective and efficient. And I think one of the things that we see on the horizon and when it comes to ESG is, is that ability to gather risk intelligence, that ability to gather more information on the site in an automated way through sensor technology or through a one-hour walk around on the site and be able to you know, click in and real-time information of what's happening on that completion site or that drilling pad or that workover pad that returns back either to a, the corporate office, to their intelligence office, or to an underwriter or even to the investor. Information is power. And when investors know what's happening out there, when the corporate office knows what's happening out there, there's a lot of efficiency that can be gained from that accountability. So I want to go back to something you said in the very beginning, we started talking the origins of where you got this idea or kind of your, your roots around the first responder area being in law enforcement. You know, you know you've seen, and those of us, whether it's in the military or even in, on, a, on a well site, something like that, when things actually happen and there's a chaotic moment, it's out of control, whatever it is, and it's a destructive situation, both from a capital standpoint around equipment and more especially around people, it's a bit hair-raising. And, you know, tr- intense training takes over if you've had it, but if you don't, it can have a real significant impact. Help us understand what you drew upon in terms of your law enforcement background that helped you kind of formulate this idea as well. The first thing that pops to my mind is the idea of communication. That's one of the main reasons we built the emergency notification system. You know, on route to a call as a law enforcement agency, you want to know what is happening and where it's happening. And so that when you get there, you can respond as properly as possible. So that was a lot of motivation from our ENS system that was created. And one of the things that I, I brought into this from my law enforcement background is being prepared and thinking through situations. And so we have our pre-op, we do a lot of research on our pre-op. You know, you saw on LinkedIn that we did a, a demo for a potential customer. Well, in order to do that demo, I, I did a pre-op plan. I went out there the day before, did a 911 test call from that site, got the information. Sure enough, it called another dispatch center. Uh, there was confusion about where I was. It's those little things that you work out before an operation starts that could save lives. And that's how serious we take it. We do a pre-op plan. We, we make that 911 test call from that site to see what PSAP or, or you know, public service answering point we're going to hit off of. It's those little things that you know, could save lives. And that's, you know, that, guys, that's the way we put it. There's been a lot of blood, sweat, and tears put into this since you know beginning of this company to 2018. But since we well started Wellside Century, if we just save one life, save a life out there, all this <laughs> emotions and stress of, of trying to run a company and get everything going, it's all worth it to me. The last seven or eight months as we've been dealing with COVID, obviously we've heard a lot about first responders. We've heard a lot about hospitals and the front lines and, and people dealing with all of these issues. Obviously this is not COVID related, but Brady, I love what you just brought up. This idea of, you know, kind of in the fog of a big incident, whether it's the fire or something else, and you've got You've got people working at the site and they're trying to communicate, whether it's by radio or whatever else. They've got 
messages bouncing off the wrong, you know, fire department, police department, or 911 system, mm. and everything's going crazy. I love this idea that you're kind of, you have the data, you're bringing it together, you're actually able to effectively communicate to the first responders. So you get the right people on the site that are there to do the right things. My assumption is that we, there's been many incidents in the past, you know, because you're out in the middle of nowhere often, and the wrong people are showing up with the wrong equipment to solve a problem they didn't know they were driving into, right? And so I know you can't name names and talk about but any recent stories or events where you guys are just super proud of how Wellsite Century played out and, and you know, helped, whether we're saving a piece of equipment or, or just how it responded. I would just love to hear, I think our listeners love to hear kind of some of the kind of the emotional impact stories like, hey, no, this is how this really played out. We saved this equipment, we saved this life. Sure. We've been on several incidents where there, there are fire situations. Our goal is on in, in less than three minutes with foam. That's kind of what we drive in, 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 our, in our URTs, on it in less than three minutes with foam. And we've reached that goal every time we've had a fire incident. And to this day, you know, we haven't had a fire that has, that has got out of control. A bigger impact is the medical standpoint of this is, you know, everybody focuses on the fire suppression, which is great because you have $30 million worth of equipment out there. You should focus on that. And the focus is on fire suppression, but I get excited because I'm on the ESG podcast, the social side of it, because there's lives on the site and there's an opportunity to save life in a, in a severe laceration or, or a severe heart attack. When you have a trained EMTB, I get more excited about that side of the service that we provide and willing to serve than the fire suppression. We do a great job on the fire suppression, but I get more excited about the medical side of things, being there able to, to say, as you can see, while I go and I got kind of passionate about, it's all worth it with just one, one life. <laughs> We've had lots of, of injuries, a lot of smashed hands, several you know, ankles. We've had some heart issues. One of the things we found interesting, Eric, is telehealth out on the well site. So a lot of companies are using telehealth now where someone comes, you know, gets in the, the tailgate of their truck and calls a, the telehealth provider. You talk to a nurse or doctor. Well, what we've seen in that is without an EMT there, that, that nurse or doctor doesn't have a lot of information to guide you. And so most usually what happens is it says, well, I don't have information. Why don't you just go ahead and go to the ER and get checked out? Because they don't want that liability on them, right? Right. With an EMT right next to you, now we can deliver to the doctor or to, to the nurse practitioner. Hey, here's his heart rate. Here's his blood pressure. Here's his oxygen level. What I'm observing as a medical professional. And so they collaborate together right there over the telehealth on the phone or in a video conference. And we've seen some really good fruit out of that as far as that doctor or nurse being informed and preventing that ER visit. So I think one of the things that it's, I think the next step from that, or maybe the next evolution, you can speak to it a little bit. Our friend Scott Gilbert at uh, Halliburton Labs just is very passionate about this, this subject of mental health, especially around men. Got the three of us. We have Jason waiting in the wings as far as the, the insight segment. I think we're typical guys probably. We're not known to go out there and kind of beyond the physical, but in terms of the mental side, are there any plans or are there any elements right now that apply to how maybe the guy's standing on the, maybe he's sitting on the tailgate because he's just having a day that doesn't have anything to do with his physical side, but has to do with his mental side. Let me go back to one of my comments, what I told our guys the first the first day we were out there. We're here to serve, serve with excellence. Part of that servant attitude is building relationships. And that's one thing I'm so proud of our team. We have some amazing people. Each one of our people, they're employees. They're not 1099s. They're not guys that we just pull out of the, out of the street. Hey, can you go fight? You know, these are people that we train and we say, hey, we're here to serve these people, these men and women on this site, whatever that means. And there's been some cool stories come out that on those relationships that are built out there through our, our services gives the space for those people to come into and meet with our ERTs. I don't know specifically on the psychological side of things in the middle, but I know there's been some relationships that have been built from 
our team members to other team members. One final thing I wanted to add, and I think you talked about this a little bit, was kind of integrating with your customers and how much, and maybe this is part of the future, maybe it's doing now, you're doing it now, but how much of your data, you think about remote ops and guys running wells and sitting in a room with 15 screens in front of them and, and all of that, how much of your data is going back also to your customers as they try to integrate that data into the, into the things they're doing just from an operational standpoint? Well, today, Eric, and that's a great question. I get excited about this question because I wanted to go so Glad much. Glad I asked it. We're, we're, <laughs> we're looking for that right partner. Right? It takes that other party to be willing to say, this is what we need. Today, what we've done is we've, of course, remote video capability. We provided that so they're able to get eyes on the site, ears on the site. But we do what we call our well site century report. And, and that is activities step-by-step, step, hour, minute, minute by he's here something something we're reporting back and we provide that back to our our customer as far as real risk intelligence we haven't had that opportunity for said we want you to this this through an api this data integration we want to know how many trucks are on stop processes what the weather's like what what chemicals are you know they have a lot of information but it's not being collaborated that's right. our vision is to be able to put that together, to mesh that together in, in the risk metrics that delivers back that customer or that underwriter or that investor. Here's happening on your site in real time or in you know 30 minute hour increments. Yeah, I definitely think, Sean, that Brady, that's part of the future, right? As you, as you think about the remote ops and you think about, you know, some guy in a, in a room with a bunch of screens in front of him, whether he's getting satellite data, whether he's getting data from well site and that kind of stuff and pulling all that data together for operational efficiency, for safety, for protecting equipment. And this is one of the things I'm excited to talk about with Jason about a little bit. It's just the dollar impact of all mm -hmm. of that. I mean, cause I think people look around and go, well, Hey, this isn't just another expense. This is more CapEx. How are we going to do all that? But I, I think, I think people eventually say that this translates to the bottom line from a dollar standpoint, in addition, just to the human impact as well. Well, it's one of the things you and I talked about, Brady, is it's really hard. You know, the thing that's going to lead the five o'clock news is not going to be the disaster that almost was, <laughs> right? right. If so so well site yeah. century, you know, averts a, a disaster. And I want to, and maybe clarify on this one as, as we wrap up, but you're also a go-between in a sense. You're, you're kind of, a, you bridge the response, not just from, you're not doing it all yourself. You're, you're there buying time for the heavier, you know, the, the more, maybe the, the, the greater resources to come in from an EMT or from a, a firefighting standpoint to get there, that you're really kind of mitigating that risk on site as well. But nobody's going to really run that story of the disaster that almost happened that you averted, more likely. We collaborate with local firsters. We actually, wherever we are, we provide them a quick response guide. So that local fire, we give them a, a visual of the site, where the site is, what's located on the site. We try to brief them as much as possible. So when they respond, they're the most informed as they can be. We collaborate with local first responders instead of you know, taking their place. Yeah, it just seems like it. Well, this, is, this has been great, Brady. It's, it always goes by too quick. We definitely appreciate your time. Absolutely love the fact that you're out there doing this with this company, that you created it out of your garage or, or not maybe, I guess, as a result of another company creating your garage, but just recognizing it. And, and thank you for what, the work that you're doing and the work that you've done. Yeah, thanks, Brady. Really appreciate it. Thank you, guys. All right, so stay tuned. We're going to take a little break, and then we'll be back with Jason Newenhouse, who is the EHS manager for Red Bluff Resources, and we're going to talk a little bit more about just the amazing impact this is having out there and get his perspective. Hey, Sean, quick note about our sponsor, Hewlett Packard Enterprise. If you think Hewlett Packard is all about printers, think again. Hewlett Packard Enterprise, HPE, is the edge-to-cloud platform as a service company. 
They help oil and gas industry leaders solve environmental, social, and governance issues by sharing industry best practices and leveraging their expertise. Their team of technologists have decades of experience in IT sustainability, efficiency, and the circular economy. HPE can help reduce life cycle costs and your company's impact on the environment while achieving greater profitability through sustainability. Sounds great, Eric. And do you want to find out more? Go to www.hpe.com forward slash engage forward slash IOT, or you can click on the link in the show notes of this episode for more information and to download their white paper about it. Welcome to the Insight segment of the podcast. We just got done listening to Brady Neal at Wellsite Century. Eric, a couple of takeaways on your end from that? Again, I go back to something that we, you and I are talking about all the time, which is just the introduction of more and more technology to allow, you know, kind of remote operations to allow, you know, to increases in safety and all those kind of things. It was great to hear kind of Brady talk about kind of the vision that he had coming from the law enforcement side, the first responder side, and trying to, you know, bridge the gap and, in all honesty, save equipment and save lives until the actual first responders can get there. So that was pretty cool. Yeah, amazing. And so one of the things we try to do here as well is Brady's told that story before. You know, we, we got some new things about there, but I know his story is out there. And so with the insight segment, we want to bring in another voice, somebody else who can speak to it and kind of expand upon the impact of something like well, site Century. You know, what are the basic issues around that? So we're very fortunate to have Jason Newenhaios on the show today. He's the EHS manager for Red Bluff Resources, and EHS is Environmental Health and Safety, which gets around a bit. Environment tends to be in all these different uh, acronyms, right? But it's, so it's 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 been out there. He's been doing it for 20 years in various companies, both in the oil and gas and outside. He's, he's worked for Devon and Chesapeake Energy. He's a graduate of the Oklahoma State University, and he has a certificate in oil and gas leadership from the University of Oklahoma. And he's also on the Oklahoma Safety Council and their board of directors. So he's very prominent in the state in terms of safety and stuff like that. Very passionate about this, obviously. And as he just told us, he has an awesome family. So we definitely want to throw that in there as well. So Jason, with all that, we thank you so much for coming on and providing a little insight for us. Absolutely. Thank you guys so much for having me. So I kind of want to start with kind of the most obvious the question, I guess, if you will. Jason, when you first heard about Wellsite Century and the service that they're, they're providing, from your perspective, what were some of your first original thoughts that you had? Well, I'll preface it with a story. I first walked on to a well site when I started with Red Bluff. And, and one of the things that I normally do is check the location, check things that should be on a site. And by doing that, I, I generally pull the safety shower just to make sure there's water that's actually going to it. Well, in this particular case, I pulled the safety shower handle and all of a sudden an alarm starts blaring and this guy comes running around the corner, making sure that I wasn't injured. And I thought to myself, holy cow, this is the most amazing response I've ever seen in my career. And to me, that was that was what started my relationship with Brady. What started my relationship with Wellsite Sentry was that particular experience on one of our well sites in Oklahoma. I guess what I would want to follow up then on: we know about this human impact, we know about this response time, but let's be honest. At the end of the day, we got to figure out the dollar side of it. And so, Jason, wanted to get your thoughts on as the service companies and the producers try to balance what's break even cash flow for them, and, and how do we make that all work and continue to focus on safety, safety of our people, and safety of our equipment. You know, how do we balance that cost? I just want to, I wanted to get your thoughts on just kind of the dollar impact, kind of the upfront spend, but also the, the savings on the back end if there's issues. Just get your thoughts around the dollar issues. Well, 
I'll be honest, when you talk about some of the things that Wellsite Century brings to the table, it's, it's not as much the dollar issues as it is the peace of mind. So if you want to look at it in just strictly dollars and cents, if you were to have a fire in the middle of nowhere and you lose an entire frack spread, you're probably talking $25, $30 million. We had an incident where there was a mechanical failure on a pump. The crew that was there exhausted the fire extinguishers and the ERT came around the corner with the foam. And had he not been there, there's a, there's a good chance we could have lost that entire frack spread. We didn't, we were fortunate. And, you know, that was an instance where the service company that was working for us was not paying for Wellsite Century Service. We as an operator felt so strongly that we wanted them on site that, that we were actually picking up the day rate for them to be there. So when you put it in a dollars and cents figure, you're not only protecting your people on site. And when I say your people, Red Bluff doesn't have any, any people per se on a frack job. All of those folks are contractors, but we think of everybody that works on one of our sites as a person. It's not just, oh, this person's a contractor. He doesn't matter. It's this person is a person and we don't want him to get injured. So we felt strongly enough about our reputation, about the people that work on our locations. We don't want to be on the six o'clock news of having a huge fire or having an injury or having ambulances or fire trucks come into our sites with a helicopter hovering above us. We're a very small company. And to be quite honest, we can't afford a failure of that magnitude. So you can look at it in strictly as dollars and cents that you could save a $30 million frack job, or you can look at it in a little bit broader picture of you're protecting your reputation and protecting the health and welfare of the people that are on location doing work for you. Well, and I think that sets up the dichotomy, one of the dichotomies we have out there, which you're alluding to. And Eric, you know, we, we heard the story that really resonated with Jason around this actual response. Like, he, you know, he's over there testing this thing. Let's see who responds. And sure enough, it's like, this is the ideal response that your EHS managers and people like that want. They want to know that it's serious. They want to know that it's going to happen at that moment. There is a dollar element, and but then there's this human element. And it seems like sometimes, because what you're alluding to a little bit, Jason, and I don't want to speak disparagingly on anyone or assume anything from before, but sometimes we cut corners. Sometimes we do the minimum. Sometimes we're not really required. And if we're not required to do something above and beyond, maybe we'll try to, for lack of a better word, skirt or like kind of go underneath it. In your experience, can you give us some of the reasons maybe why there's, is it, is it purely just a dollars and cents thing that motivates people to maybe do that or not do that? Or is there more to it? Yeah. I mean, a lot of times when you look at the oil field and you look at risk, 99.9% of the time, you can do something a certain way and you have a positive outcome or a non-negative outcome. But that one time you have a non-negative outcome, somebody gets hurt, there's a fire, and that makes it not worth, worth it. A lot of times, I don't want to say smaller operators, but each company whether it's a service company or an operator, they have a level of risk that they're willing to accept. And generally for lower dollars, you accept more risk. And, you know, I'm fortunate the companies that I've worked for tend to be fairly risk averse. Red Bluff is the most risk averse company that I've worked for, but it's simply because our leadership team does not want the 
potential for someone to be hurt on one of our locations. And I've heard it directly from our CEO that I'm not going knocking on a door because somebody got hurt if I can stop it. I love kind of the human angle there that we're focusing on our people. And Jason, I think you're right. I mean, 99% of the time, it's a non-issue. The 1%, the check writing can get really big from a dollar and cent standpoint. I brought up the issue because there is so much pricing pressure on the yeah. service companies right now. They are getting squeezed incredibly hard. And so, you know, one of the things, you know, that Wellsite Century brings to the table, you know, there is a value proposition. There is a dollars and cents for why you should do it. But the great part is just the human side of it. The other big thing that I think Jason hit on, and this is so important for the industry, is image. Jason, you said reputation, right? Like we do not want this on the six o'clock news. We have to do a better job of making sure that we don't create events that can get put on the six o'clock news. And whether it's, you know, an out of control fire that destroys a frack fleet, somebody that loses their life, all of those kind of negative stories continue to feed into this negative loop about the industry. And so I think it's, it's critical as we think about the image we portray of ourselves that we're putting our best foot forward from a safety standpoint, from you know how we maintain our equipment and how we protect our people is a critical, critical part of that. And I think we have to acquiesce that the financial side does make a big impact. It does have its role. It does. I mean, we could. So I guess to kind of speak to that, Jason, you know, we joke. I said something to Brady. We mentioned it earlier on the podcast about why doesn't every well site location have this? That seems like an easy fix. I'm sure Brady would accept that all day long if it was mandated throughout the whole world, everywhere there's a well site. But to maybe kind of meet halfway, what would you see? What do you think companies can do in your experience, in your time in? What can companies do even within their own context? Maybe a little bit more price competitive, a little bit more practical just on a day-to-day basis that you've seen in your career that they could do to help improve these situations? Well, you know, one of the things Bray mentioned was, was relationships. You know, we're fortunate that the partners that we use on the contracting side, we've got very strong relationships with. We trust those folks to operate as we expect them to. And in the nature of oil and gas, the phrase that I always use is trust, but verify. And, you know, our, our expectation is that they handle their business the way they should handle their business. You know, the use of Wellsite Sentry for us has benefited because you have that ERT out there that is kind of a third party, kind of an intermediary, doesn't necessarily work for the operator, doesn't necessarily work for the contractor. They're out there for the site, like Brady mentioned. And that really gave to me, like I was getting, I was getting the full story. I walk in that trailer and I go, hey, how's it going today? I'd hear an honest assessment, not an assessment of what the contractor thinks the operator's EHS guy wants to hear. (laughs) And if I'm trying to correct something and I'm trying to protect people, I need to know exactly what's going on. I don't want anything sugar-coated. And communication in whether you're in oil and gas or you're making widgets, communication is the key. Yeah, and honest communication. Right. You know, I've sat in dozens and dozens and dozens of board meetings and almost without exception at a OFS company board meeting, the very first slide in the board slide deck is a safety slide. 
and it is it is a key driver of bottom line performance. Every day that equipment is down, every day that a person is injured, that is money lost. And when your margins are getting squeezed tighter and tighter and tighter, you know, attention to these kinds of things, safety and you know, maintaining equipment and quick response times, I think is critical. And so I think you know, this is the exact kind of service, you know, that we're going to start to see the tech connecting with fire suppression systems, connecting with human safety issues and bringing it all together. You know, you want, you're maximizing uptime, minimizing downtime and providing the best value to somebody like Red Bluff or another producer. Right. And so I think we're going to see more and more of this, which I'm sure makes Brady really happy. <laughs> so I want to ask you a question to that, Jason. You've been around this, this acronym and this idea, safety environment all your career for a very long time. So what is different now? We have this you know, surge around ESG. You can't go very far without hearing it. I think I'm almost as, I guess, tired of saying ESG as I am podcast, although I'm not quite there yet. But all joking aside, is it different now? Do you feel a different rhythm out there, a different feel out there? And if so, what about it this time around it might be different? Well, it is different in the fact that everybody has so much greater platform to express their opinion, whether it be social media or, or otherwise. We operate in a fairly small footprint and in, in one of the communities that we're probably the, the most prevalent operator. And, you know, every pothole in the road is caused by oil and gas. Every issue is caused by oil and gas. And the little things that we do can make a difference. We prevent a fire. We do something like that. We don't have a bunch of smoke coming off a of flare. Some those tangible things that people can't say, hey, these guys aren't running their business right. You know, companies that don't care, they don't spend a little bit of money to get a lot of community credit, I guess if you want to call it that. It goes so far to wash the mud off a road, to bring a, you know, bring a street sweeper in to get the gravel off the road when it's been raining and the trucks have pulled all the gravel off the pad onto the road and it's kicking up and cracking people's windshields. You do the little things, the big things will come. And, you know, really, this is one of those little things. If you, if you do the little things right, the big things aren't big things. I think community partnership and investing in those relationships, and we're not just here to extract resources, we're here to contribute back in to the area that we're a part of. We're not just talking about hiring people. We're actually talking about participating in the society and where we're at, participating in the community. And just personal story, I love the idea of getting the little rocks off the road. My F-250 windshield is currently cracked as a result <laughs> of an oil and gas related truck. So I think that's right. I think as we think about ESG and we, as we think about how it plays out, part of our mission has to be to connect and to want to really integrate ourselves into the communities that we're in. So they see us as a partner mm -hmm. and not just somebody that's making life difficult in other ways, right? Yeah, I mean, I really love it. So Jason, I love that you, I don't think there's any better way to kind of, I don't know, at the end of it, as far as that goes in, in terms of just that statement, because it's that, it is that idea of us going back to what Brady said in the beginning of not just establishing that relationship, but a productive relationship. It's not just employing people, but it's ensuring they go home safe to their families and they may never be involved in the industry, but if they're around it, they're not suffering from it in some sort of weird, you know, and granted, I mean, crack windshields aren't the end of the world, but it's those things that are cumulative, I think, in those, and they lead to bigger issues, like you were saying. So just the little things, That's I love that. So before we go, Jason, anything out there, if there's a company kind of on the fence or just, you know, what's kind of that core thing you've seen throughout your career that you would encourage 
companies, especially in the oil and gas area, to kind of focus on in regards to this topic? Again, it would have to be that every individual, regardless of the company they work for, is a life, needs to be protected. You know, it, it doesn't matter to Red Bluff whose logo's on the hard hat. If you're on our location, you're part of our team. Yeah. Well, okay. human life has value. And part of the bigger picture of ESG is addressing those issues, yeah. whether it's providing energy, whether it's the social stuff. It is about, you know, putting value on that. Yeah. It doesn't do us any good to provide the energy and then for people to save their lives and then cost lives in the process. That's not a, right. that's not gain. So Jason, thank you so much for what you're doing. Thank you for your career, your passion. I know you're obviously making a big, big splash out there in Oklahoma. And we just encourage you to keep doing that. And thank you for your time. Absolutely. Thank you guys for having me so much. You're welcome. All right. And with that, Eric, another great segment in the... I think that was an Oklahoma episode as it well. Was. It was. It was. we got to find somebody to do the talking point on the Oklahoma side. For sure. All right, buddy. Thanks, everybody. We'll see y'all next week. Hey, everybody. It's Savannah from OGGN, and here are the events on deck for February 2021. This month, we only have three events, but if you'd like the full list, you can click the link in the show notes to sign up for our events newsletter. We send it out every month, and it includes more info about the events I talk about here. We even include events that occur two months ahead of time, so if you're interested in always staying in the loop about oil and gas events, make sure to check that out. First up, we have our two in-person events, the TAMU SBE Sporting Clays Tournament at Tonkaway Ranch in College Station on the 19th, and the Thrive Energy Conference at Minute Maid Park from the 24th to the 26th. The only online event we have this month is the TAMU SPE Executive Series with our very own Mark LaCour of Oil & Gas This Week on the 26th. Other than these events, OGGN may be hosting some more live streams this month, so make sure to check out our Facebook, LinkedIn, or our website for more information about any of the live streams we have coming up. If you have any questions about the events or any of our shows, make sure to reach out to me through my email in the show notes. That's all for February. I hope you guys have a great month and thanks for tuning in. On behalf of the Elevate podcast team, thank you so much for clicking play and bringing to life these amazing stories. We hope this elevated your perspective and serves you well as you navigate understanding ESG and the energy evolution. We are so grateful for your time and kindly ask that you rate and review the show on Apple iTunes, which is a great way to help us grow. The best way to support the work we are doing is to tell a friend about it. Ask them to listen and share with others what you've learned from listening to our guests. Lastly, we want to invite you to reach out to us for any comments, suggestions, or just to connect. You can do that through my email, sean.mccoy at oggn.com. I'd love to hear from you and what you think of our podcast. Be safe, and we look forward to bringing you another episode next week. Here's a demonstration of some mental stimulation. We a nation making change. Let me frame the illustration. It's time for us to elevate your mind to a higher place. OGG in the power, here to innovate. innovate. Elevate your mind to a higher place. OGG in the power, here to innovate. Ha!